Hi, I'm Margie, and welcome to the Desert Island Dishes podcast. This is the podcast where every week I ask my guests to choose their seven Desert Island dishes. These range from finding out about the dish that most reminds them of their childhood, the best dish they've ever eaten, and of course, the last dish they would choose to eat before being cast off to the desert island. Okay, so before we go any further, if you're listening and haven't yet left a review, please do take 30 seconds to leave a five-star rating and a little review as it really does help to spread the word. It enables me to keep making the podcast for you. And hey, it's your good deed of the day, done and dusted. Also, don't forget that you're very welcome on Instagram. I'm Margie Namora, and I love to see you there. So this week, I met with a very impressive two Michelin-starred Magnus, and he said afterwards, he's never been asked in an interview before about his favorite sandwich, which (laughs) I can't say I'm surprised by. Also, you're going to hear my failed attempt at getting him to answer one of the questions. I obviously need to work on my powers of persuasion. Definitely one of those things that as soon as it's over, you think of very witty things you could have said if you got the chance again. But hey, that's the beauty of podcasting. You get one shot and that's your lot. Right, that's enough of me waffling. Here is today's episode. My guest today is Magnus Nilsson. Magnus is the head chef of the Favakin restaurant in northern Sweden. He initially joined as a sommelier, and within a year, he had taken over the running of the restaurant. At the age of 34, he has two Michelin stars and has been featured in PBS, The Mind of a Chef, and Netflix's The Chef's Table. He has just published his third book, The Nordic Baking Book, which showcases over 450 recipes gathered by Magnus. Time magazine states that he is routinely counted among the world's greatest chefs. Welcome, Magnus. Thank you. Thanks for having me. (laughs) So I don't want to embarrass you, but I wondered, how does it feel to be called one of the greatest chefs in the world? I mean, it's very nice to be called that. And I I mean, I, I don't get embarrassed, actually, by the question. And it is all of these things. Like, I mean, when you win a prize or when your restaurant gets a good review or even when you're there and you see a customer really respond you know, in a positive way to something that you've done. It's just very, very nice. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it shouldn't be anything else. No. Yeah, great answer. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you didn't always want to be a chef, did you? You started off thinking that maybe you'd be a marine biologist. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've, I've been wanting to be a lot of different things. Okay. Uh, and I've done a lot of different things as well, like parallel to, uh, to the cooking. And reading your books, hearing you talk, you're obviously very academic. When you left school, did you feel any kind of pressure to pursue something sort of a bit more bookish? Not really. I mean, I I could have done that. And at some point I also wanted to, but there was never any pressure from, for example, my parents to, to uh, pursue an academic career. And they were always very supportive of whatever choices I kind of made on that, on that front. That's amazing. Mm. And so you did end up going to culinary school. How, how did you make that decision? It was a very last minute decision because I, as, as you said before, I, I had sort of thought of becoming a marine biologist. So I applied for both schools. Oh, did you? Yeah, I did. And I was, uh, you know, I had grades enough for both schools as well. And then in like the very last minute, I just picked the cooking school. Oh my goodness. That's amazing. And the rest, as they say, is history. Exactly. Let's pause there and talk about the first desert island dish. And that's the dish that most reminds you of your childhood. 
it's not really a dish actually it's more of a sort of sensation and it's uh, the the sensation of cutting cucumbers in summer oh wow uh, and that relates to like one of the earliest food memories that i have when i was standing in my grandmother's kitchen and cutting fresh cucumbers for making quick pickled cucumbers which is a very sort of um, summery thing in in sweden was your grandmother a good cook yeah both of my grandmothers were they're very good cooks that's so cool so I learned so much from your books, not least that there is a tradition of sweet Saturdays in Sweden, which you describe in your there book, <laughs> <laughs> remembering back to your childhood. Can you tell us a bit more about them? It's actually to talk about those, you have to kind of explain the origins of them. And they're actually not very nice. I mean, the, the Swedish government uh, sometime in the early sort of mid 20th century made some terrible experiments on institutionalized people, like really horrible, okay. uh, where they tried, uh, you know, they, they essentially they, they did research on how tooth decay functions. Okay. And it's actually the uh, research that's based or that bases all of the knowledge on tooth decay today. Okay. <laughs> but it was nonetheless terrible. People suffered a lot. But the uh, conclusion to all these experiments were that the uh, amount you sh- of sugar that you eat is directly related to how much tooth decay you can potentially get if you don't clean your teeth. Sure. And it's vastly superior to concentrate your sugar intake to like one moment rather than spreading it out over many days. Okay. And there they decided that they were going to sort of push for candy and sweets being eaten only once a week and then Saturday was chosen and they started sort of informing people about this and it became a a tradition uh, that later even became culture and now I mean it's just something that all Swedes do. That's so cool. And no one really thinks about why Uh, and it's led to two things. One is that we do eat candy on Saturdays and the other thing is that we eat the most candy in the whole world per capita. Oh my goodness (laughs) really? Just on Saturdays? Yeah. So it's like you really go for it you know? But that's quite fun as a child because it means sort of every Friday night is a bit like Christmas Eve. Yeah it's like it it is and I remember growing up it was a really important tradition and I can see it in my kids now as well that it's like you wake up Friday morning and you go to the grocery store and there's like the pick and mix section and you know it's it's a yeah it's a, it's sort of a big deal. Yeah, I think we should start doing that over here. I like the sound of that. <laughs> so we're on to the second desert island dish, and that's the first dish that you learned to cook. Uh, the first dish I learned to cook was fried father corn sausage, which is uh, it's like a fairly large diameter, like eight centimeters smooth beef and pork sausage that's very sort of common older everyday food in sweden and you could cut slices and you cook them and and it was served with a fried egg is this the dish that you cooked when you were three years old and then that you know and then it sort of just continued you know okay (laughs) i didn't know whether that was sort of folklore when i read that but you were really three i mean that's quite impressive i'm not sure i even three and a half because my sister was newborn the half is very important (laughs) (laughs) yeah i'm not sure i even knew where my nose was when i was three and a half so i'm very probably didn't either actually but i managed to (laughs) produce that so after culinary school you moved first to stockholm and then to paris where you started work experience at the restaurant la france Mm -hmm. and then you went and got a job at la perge under alain 
Passard, and the story goes that you got fired after just a couple of weeks. Yes, but not, we should say, because of your cooking. But that must have been. I think it was a little oh. bit because I, you know, it was a. I mean, I so I'm, when I moved to France, I thought I knew French because I studied French in school, and it yeah. turned out that I didn't know oh, really yeah, <laughs> at all. And uh, you know, it was hard to work because in the kitchen, then it was the head chef was Mauro Colagreco, who's now actually a great friend. He has a restaurant uh, on the sort of uh, east coast of uh, France today called Mirasur. He, he's from Argentina. He didn't speak uh, English <laughs> then. Okay. <laughs> uh, uh, so it was a bit hard to, you know, be of any use. Uh, and they had a couple of slow weeks after uh, the new year and they had laid off the most useless people they okay. had. And I was <laughs> one of them. <laughs> but you were also very young, weren't you? Yeah, we must have been 19. Yeah, it's pretty young. Yeah. And then after that, you then went back to Las Rons under Pascal Barbeau. Yeah. And you worked there for three years. So I wondered, whilst you were working in the restaurants, was that experience everything that you thought it was going to be whilst you were at culinary school? I think that the uh, the reality of working in uh, those types of very ambitious restaurants, and especially then uh, in France, was very, very different from uh, culinary school and what culinary school, at least in Sweden, prepared you for. And I, I still feel like that's the case, that most culinary schools actually don't produce cooks. Yeah. You know, you go there and you spend several years uh, learning possibly how to cook, but not to how to work as a cook. Yeah. Uh, so I think that's a, I, I don't have a, like a solution to how to fix that, but I can see that it's not often correlating very well with yeah like you you don't come out of culinary school like ready-made to go into restaurants it's still a learning process isn't it like they're so it's such a different yeah Yeah. you need that hands-on practical experience though of working in restaurants which i guess you can only get from working in restaurants yeah i mean generally (laughs) people come out of culinary school like some sort of advanced home cook with some fresh tattoos yeah that's essentially (laughs) like how it is you know yeah And, and you come into restaurant and the fact is that you don't know how to work as a cook and it's the, it's the restaurant's job to teach you. And this is the, the sad bit is that most restaurants and people operating restaurants, they're not, they're never been equipped to teach people how to do that Yeah, because no one taught them. And it's something that we've uh, worked a lot with at Faviken and something that we constantly struggle with is how to, you know, make sure that the people that work in various positions in our team actually have the, not just the cooking skills, but the skills to, um, do their job especially when it comes to like managerial positions and and what was it about french cooking that drew you there because was it that these great chefs themselves or was it the technique why why did you make the move to france it wasn't specifically french cooking as such that made me want to go there but i went there on vacation and i stayed okay (laughs) really enjoyed living in paris and i mean i didn't know about uh, la france then and it just got my first star uh, okay. when I started working there. So I think it was, um, you know, circumst- very circumstantial why I ended up there and why I stayed so long. And you know. We're, Let's talk about the third desert island dish. Mm-hmm. And that's the best dish you've ever eaten. And that, I don't know what it is. Oh. <laughs> I have no idea. You know, I've, eaten, I've eaten a lot of very good dishes. But I think it's, um, it's really hard to name like a, the best dish. And doing that would be kind of a lie. Because it's so circumstantial Magnus, as well. you are not getting away from it that easily. Yeah. You can give us a few different answers. <laughs> or the best dish you've eaten this year. But I don't have one. I don't think about food like that. I, I just really don't, you know. Okay, mm-hmm. really? Mm. You, you won't give us anything? No. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So after three years, you move back to Sweden. And 
from everything that I've read, in a way, you became a little bit disillusioned with cooking. Yeah, I, I, it wasn't particularly interesting at that time. And I mean, I moved back to Sweden. I thought that the produce was just a lot less good than it was where I worked at La France in, in Paris. And I felt that whatever I cooked, it's also resembled uh, the cooking of Pascal, my former head chef. Yeah. You know, in a, in, in a way that then didn't feel, and which was, I mean, in one way silly, but I think it's the way it is. And I, I mean, today when I see it, because I can still see it in photos, for example, I never think about it in my daily work, but I can see it in photos in a magazine or something. I can see like the the DNA, you know, shining through. And today I'm very proud of it, actually. I think it's great that you can see where someone comes from and, you know, their, what what shaped you, you know? Yeah. So do you, was it was the fact that you you didn't see how that you how you could make that food your own that it felt a bit uninspiring yeah, it was just it was just a very uninspiring it probably wasn't great uh, creatively it wasn't great yeah and it was just one of those moments where it's like well this this sucks so yeah. something else instead <laughs> and so you decided that you were going to become a wine writer and you went and you studied did you think that really that was it for chefing you wouldn't be a chef anymore yeah yeah. It was pretty much like that. Yeah. It feels like quite a big decision, but I guess you were still at that time, you were only 23, yeah. so you're still pretty young. Yeah, I wasn't even 23. I was young. I was 22. But, and so no, definitely. I mean, it's. Uh, I think it was a pretty, pretty big decision, but I've always done what I felt like doing. Yeah, it's the best way to do it. I think so. Yeah. yeah. We're on to the fourth Desert Island dish. Mm-hmm. Most important question. Ooh. What is your favorite sandwich? Um, it would be something on like, soft Swedish flatbread, which is sort of a rye, wheat, barley, uh, soft flatbread that's like three millimeters thick and usually seasoned with some fennel and aniseed and things like that. And I mean, the topping could be pretty much anything from cheese to, I mean, it's just the the, the bread and the way you kind of eat it. It's just has so many um, connections to my childhood and memories of baking this bread with uh, my grandmothers and with my parents and uh, stuff like that. Is it like a? It's a. It's a wrap. No, it's like a. The the, the flatbread itself is a round, and you would cut it in quarters. And okay. Then you would spread the quarter with butter, and you would add the topping. It can be like slices of cheese, charcuterie, liver pate. It can be really anything. And then you you don't turn it into like a a wrap or like a roll. You just okay. hold it once. So it's a thin sandwich. Right? Okay, so I like to be very specific yeah. about my sandwiches. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and so it was your wine writing that took you to Farvakin in the first place. And for anyone who doesn't know, Farvakin is a 12-seater restaurant. It's actually 24. Oh my goodness, since it, when? Since quite a long time. I mean, it started oh. out as 8 and then it became 12 and then it became 16 and then it became 24 hmm. in the like, uh, and it's been like that the last five years. But Oh my goodness, I'm so embarrassed. No, I, no, don't worry. It's just that my, uh, there's my so many... I got uh, it wrong. <laughs> the, the, the reason why there are so many different uh, numbers on uh, on the number of seats in Fabican is because of this, the gradual growth to what it is. And it was always planned for 24 in the beginning. It's just that the first years we didn't have enough customers. So we kind of, changed the format of the restaurant little by little as we were able to fill it. But for the last five, six years now, it's been 24 seats. Okay, so 24 seats. It's set on a remote 24,000 acre hunting estate in northwest Sweden, more than 600 kilometers north of Stockholm. So my first question is, had you ever been to that part of Sweden before? There. Oh, you did? Yeah, I Okay, did. <laughs> so this is, this yeah, is home for do. you. It is, you know, not Faviken as such, but uh, the area and my parents still live there. My sister lives there and 
that's where I went to school. Okay, so getting the wine job there felt like a really natural move. It was like a short, I mean, I, I lived in Stockholm then. I moved back from Paris. I studied wine. And, and this was really like a short consultancy, like a short temporary gig. It was supposed to be for three months or something like that. And put it in, put it into perspective for us. How long does it take to get from Stockholm to Farbergen? It, it, I mean, you drive in a day. You drive, it's like, okay. Yeah, it's like an eight hour, nine hour drive. And you, most people would fly four to five minute flight from uh, Stockholm to Östersund, which is the closest city. And so, as you say, you were just meant to be there for a few months, but you could, by all accounts, already see the potential of what the restaurant could be. So you took on the challenge of staying for one year to make that happen. And, you know, the rest, as they say, is history. Exactly. I mean, that's how it is. <laughs> is that how it happened? It, it, yeah, sort of. Yeah, in a condensed way, that's how it happened. And initially, I wasn't very convinced, actually. But after one year, I'd seen that people you know, were willing to travel there, not as they do today, but, you know, some people showed an interest in coming there and that was sort of enough to show us that they was going in the right direction. So at that point, were you thinking, did you have any any ambition to actually have your own restaurant? Because you sort of turned your back on cooking and... I mean, at that point, I had already decided to go back into the kitchen again. Initially, not. Initially, it was just because I couldn't find the head chef. Okay. But after that year, uh, I was already back in the kitchen and that was sort of not a factor in in the planning anymore. Okay. And the philosophy of the restaurant is all about the produce that you can get from the estate. And that obviously comes with challenges as in the winter temperatures can drop to minus 40. So presumably that means that summer months are spent preserving as much as you can. It is. And I mean, most of the things that we serve do come from the estate or from the immediate area. And there are a few things that come from further away as well. We get lots of fish and seafood from the Norwegian coast. There are a few vegetable items that come from further south in Sweden and so on. But what we do try is to limit ourselves to buying from people that we know. Okay. Because that's a very good way of getting great produce. And then the seasonality we treat differently because we try to embrace the culture of northern Scandinavia where storing produce from summer kind of gets you through winter, even yeah. though you know, no one has to do it. I mean, we can fly lemons in, in January as well, but we don't. So we choose not to. Okay. So it's sort of the way that you're eating in the restaurant is kind of, it's a throwback to the heritage of the area. It is. It's the culture of the area. Yeah. And is there a favorite time of year for you at the restaurant? It's usually always the next season. That's like the, the one that I want to you know cook in. And it's always been like that. So now I'm looking forward to winter, for example. Yeah, aren't we all? Mm. <laughs> I guess as a chef, limiting the ingredients you can use is a really exciting challenge mm. because it sort of presumably forces your creativity beyond what it is. I think it's. it does. Yeah. So you don't allow yourself to use lemons? No, for example, because it doesn't make sense up there. Uh, and they're like regardless, they wouldn't be the very best lemons you could get anyway. And uh, I think that... I mean, it's always good to have some restrictions in your work because it makes you think a bit more. <laughs> De yeah, definitely. You can't just rest on your laurels. Yeah. So two Michelin stars, mm -hmm. pretty amazing. How did it feel when that happened? For me, it was never, that was never part of the plan because when we started Favik and the Michelin Guide didn't go outside of Stockholm. Oh, really? So I mean, I started it knowing that we would never have any Michelin stars and I was fairly uninterested in having them too. Because I felt like I'd already experienced that working at La Strance. I mean, they had just gotten the first star when I started. Um, they got the third star 
you know, a couple of months after I left and the second star happened sort of while I was working there. So even if that wasn't my restaurant, I felt like I'd sort of seen that because I was very, very sort of emotionally invested in, in La Trance as well. So I never really, you know, spent any time thinking of that. And then um, when we got the second star, I mean, I always get very, very happy when someone likes what we do, regardless who they are. Yeah, of course. Um, and uh, But I, I, I wasn't, it was nice. It was fun and I was happy. But then I saw the effect on the team, which was like really great. I think that's for me the biggest take home with getting the stars that, you know, it provides a sense of kind of, confirmation for the staff that what we're doing is something that's worthwhile and is very, very good. Whilst I get that all the time anyway, because I get to meet so many people who tell me, and I mean, it's, um, it's different when you have that interaction all the time, but for the team, it, it really did mean a lot. Yeah. It's like a real morale boost for everyone. It is. I, and you know, not that we didn't have good morale before, but it's like, you can see that they're like, it validates yeah. their work somehow. Yeah, of course. Mm. And so I don't know whether this is just because I don't know anything about it, but is it true that you don't know when the Michelin starred people, the, the Michelin judges are coming? No, I mean, you don't. And they are actually pretty good at keeping it secret. And on occasion, they uh, identify themselves afterwards. They have a little badge card. What, you know? they, they flash no, they, you? Yeah, they, they have like, <laughs> and that's, and it happens on occasion. And that's when they want to have a word and ask some questions, maybe see, like, have a little tour behind the scenes and stuff like that. Yeah, it doesn't really but make sense. then you sense. never see them again. When okay. they've done that, they never come back. Then there is someone else. Okay. And it actually, it's, um, uh, there's lots of talk about this with the restaurant reviewers and in the restaurant circle that, I mean, most of the reviewers you'll ever get to restaurant, you'll know who they are and you simply because, you know, that's how it works. Yeah. And they come back and so on. Whilst uh, I, at least maybe it's my ignorance, but I've never been able to identify uh, identify a Michelin judge. Yeah. Well, I mean, you you obviously treat everyone as though they're a Michelin judge anyway, so it doesn't really make a difference. I mean, we do. And, it does, and in, in a restaurant, you know, like Fabian, it doesn't make a difference either because we can't make any changes. Everyone yeah. eats the same food <laughs> at the same time. There's only one menu. Everyone sits down together. So it's not like you can just single out the table. Yeah. And, you know, <laughs> it doesn't work that way. So it's for us, it makes no difference. Yeah. We're on to the fifth desert island dish. And that's the dish that you eat the most often. That would probably be yogurt and muesli in the summers. Yeah. <laughs> and a sandwich in the winter because that's what I would have for breakfast. Okay. And you don't really have lunch, do you? Because you have a really early supper. Yeah, we eat 3.30. Okay. So I have like lunch, dinner. Okay, it's a good way of doing it. Mm. Lina. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay, so six years ago, you started to research Nordic food culture with the intention of trying to explain what it looks like and why. You set out to create these sort of documentary style books, which really represented the people in as many parts of the Nordic region as possible. The first was the Nordic cookbook, and the second of the series is your new one, the Nordic baking book. Mm-hmm. You talk in the book about how one of your main motivations for writing the books was to give people who didn't grow up in the Nordics a better understanding of the food culture and what traditional recipes are really like. Do you think that Nordic food is very misunderstood? I think that it's very misunderstood, actually. I really do. And I mean, you can just go on Google and you can type Nordic food in. Yeah. And what you're going to get is links to like 100 articles about Favik and 200 articles about Noma. And then several hundred articles about a handful of other very ambitious, modern 
fine dining restaurants. And then you're going to get recipes for gravlax and meatballs and herring. Yeah. And then there's going to be like a lot of images of uh, meatballs from Ikea. Yeah. <laughs> and that's blasted it. Ikea yeah. and meatballs. <laughs> that's it, you know? And that's not indicative of how people actually eat in the Nordic region. And I, I really wanted these, both of these books, the Nordic cookbook and the Nordic baking book to uh, be documentary in the sense that they actually tell it as it is. You know, they show what people cook and eat today in their homes. Yeah, well, you've definitely succeeded. And the recipes in the books, they're not your own. They're meticulously gathered from different people. And so it means you have really created a real snapshot of how people are actually cooking today, which yeah. I just, to me, that's the most fascinating thing. Tell us a bit about the process of gathering all of those recipes and then writing the books, because I mean, that's a labor of love. <laughs> it's, it's a lot of, a lot of work. I mean, for the Nordic cookbook, because I see this as one project, even though there are two different books. Yes. And for the Nordic cookbook, the first thing I did was that I put out the questionnaire on the website. Okay. People were invited to come in there and just answer, you know, some questions about their food culture and also to submit recipes. And what I got there was two things. I got uh, like 80 recipes for pickled herring that everyone claimed were their grandmothers okay. and that they were the best. <laughs> and it turned out that they were all the same recipe <laughs> and that they all came from the same cookbook published by uh, Bonnier in the 40s called Bonnier Stua Cookbook. Oh my goodness. Uh, you could, and, and I mean, it's like, you know, on the peppercorn, the same recipe and everyone's grandmother has stolen it from there and put it in their recipe book. <laughs> that is totally uh, what I would do as a yeah, grandmother. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that, that's one of them. And then the other thing is that people have, a, they, they don't, they're not truthful about their own food culture. When, when you talk about food culture, they tell it the way they think that they want it to be but not the way it actually is. That's so interesting. Um, so if you, if you ask Swedish for like, ooh, can you name a common everyday dish in Sweden? Then it would be like, yeah, it's a fried salted herring. And it's like, yeah, that is a Swedish dish. But I mean, I ate it the last time like seven years ago. Oh, really? <laughs> uh, and I don't think that I'm going to eat it anytime soon. And that's probably the case for most people. And it turns out that no one said, for example, pizza. Okay. As a common everyday dish, which yeah. probably is, figures much more often than like the everyday menu of a, an average Swede than does salted fried herring. Uh, so it, it was interesting to kind of get that sort of information on how people actually see their own food culture. Yeah, that's so um, interesting. It was. And then, and then it was like a lot about traveling and interviewing people and trying to collect information that's always going to be biased because you're collecting it from someone who has an opinion and who has also decided that this is the recipe to share. But to remove that bias later, uh, that sort of became my job, you know, to make a collection of recipes that's actually representative of as many people as possible and in as big as sort of a part of the region as possible. And that's been the same for both Nordic cookbook and Nordic baking book. That's amazing. And I love that you talk about the process of writing the Nordic baking book and how actually defining what baking is, whilst that sounds like quite a relatively easy thing to do. <laughs> not if you, at all. Yeah, if you don't have to do it, you're yeah. like, well, that's obvious. But like you say, how do you define it? Because pastries that have been fried instead of baked, obviously they still need to come into it. I thought that was really interesting. Yeah. And it ended up being like uh, everything that's made from grains. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> anything that's been baked and uh, anything that feels like it kind of belongs in the context. So I also added a chapter of like 
making uh, jams and cordials, for example, yeah. which is not baking, but which definitely feels like it belongs in that book. Definitely. Plus, like, there's also <laughs> lots of cross-referencing from actual baking recipes to jams and things like that. So it was good to have that. So it's uh, perhaps like in the traditional meaning is sort of a pure baking book, but yeah. it's baking plus everything else associated with baking or grains yeah. and jam. Yeah. <laughs> You're playing fast and loose with the yeah. definition, but we're yeah. going to allow it. <laughs> and I, I mean, I learned loads. I didn't really realize how important grains are, which I guess sounds really obvious, but you had a really nice way of describing it where you said that it's ingrained within us to like what once sustained us. And that's such an interesting way of thinking about food culture. No, and, and that's the thing which you see today, and it's not just grains, but you see it in almost everything that we buy and eat and prepare for pleasure today. Uh, at some point in history, it was like essential for survival. And it doesn't matter if it's like cured ham or uh, if it's grains that are turned into a flatbread or it's like things that we choose to eat today because we like them. But 100 years ago, 200 years ago, we had to eat them because otherwise we would starve. Yeah. And uh, I, I think that's just fascinating that we're like pre-programmed to, you know, perceive these items as something very positive. Yeah. Because once upon a time, they did sustain us. Yeah, it's so interesting. Mm. The sixth desert island dish is your go-to dinner party dish. But I don't know if you have time to throw dinner parties. I do. Okay. Always <laughs> <laughs> Sundays, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I think that I would probably do something in the oven, like something roasted in the oven. It could be like maybe a whole turbot, like a small mm. whole turbot is good. Or a whole chicken or some other thing like that that you can just get into the oven and you can make uh, some simple you know, sides to it. Yeah. And that's it. And do you make a pudding? I would probably make a pudding. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what would be like your go-to pudding? It would probably be like a crumble of some kind. Yeah, that's a good option. Yeah. I can imagine your house would be a very popular destination for a dinner party invite. I think it is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I can well imagine that. Yeah. We have a cookbook corner on desert island dishes. <laughs> and I wanted to know what is your most treasured cookbook? I mean, I have, so I, I used to collect cookbooks yep. and I have about 3,000 cookbooks. No, uh, like literally 3,000. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh my goodness. Uh, and they're now, they're now in boxes in my basement. I don't have anywhere to store them. I don't read them at all. And it's, uh, I, you know, it's just, I used to read all of them and now I don't. Okay. Uh, <laughs> but I mean, there are several of them that uh, I think are really important for various reasons. I mean, some of them are really beautiful objects, especially like the very old ones, like there is one that's popularly called or referred to as Kaiserweiss cookbook, which is one of the oldest Swedish cookbooks. It was first printed in the 1780s. Oh, wow. I have one of those that's, uh, it's not the first printing, but it's, I think, the second printing maybe. Okay. And that's uh, uh, like, it's such a beautiful object. It's, you can barely read it because you don't understand what it's, you know, what the, like, the, the language is incomprehensible. Okay. <laughs> But it's a fascinating document and it's like a beautiful object, you know, handbound and like, you know, with letter bindings and things like that. And then like, I really also like all of the Time Life Publishing Foods of the World series books that were produced in the 60s and 70s, mm -hmm. which I think mark some of the last books where like a very well-funded publishing house sent out like a really good journalist somewhere in the world. It's like, you have to learn this and then report back, you know, yeah. <laughs> go to Sweden for one year and report about the cooking. And and they're fascinating because the, uh, I mean, you can see that they're old, but the uh, content matter is still like relevant. 
and it's so well written. And so is the photography. It's like still beautiful photography. And you can see that they had like lots of time and lots of resources to produce these books. And they are, I mean, they made from, they made the Foods of the World books from various parts of all of the planet, you know, and they're all great. Okay. I need to check Um, those out. And then more recently, I have one that I'm looking forward to reading that I haven't read yet, which is a great Dixter cookbook. Yes. Yes. That's waiting in my office at home. Okay. Yeah. That's going to be a good Because I'm fairly into gardening as well. Yeah. <laughs> fairly. <Yeah. laughs> you dabble in it. <laughs> yeah, sort of. <laughs> um, we're on to the final seventh desert island dish. And that's the last dish you would choose to eat before being cast off to the desert island. Rice porridge. Ooh. Yeah. Yes. Is there sort of a traditional way of making it? Yeah. It's like what you would call rice pudding here, which is like round grain rice boiled in milk. Okay. And so is this savory or is it sweet? It's so we in 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 Scandinavia the the the, the defining line there is a lot thinner than here. Okay. <laughs> um, we have a lot of dishes that are sweetish, but yeah. you can eat them as a main meal. And the rice pudding is definitely one. Oh, of I them. love the sound of that. So you can so, have it. Like, would you have it with jam? You would probably have it with the cinnamon and sugar. Okay, and you'd have that as a main course. Yeah. Yeah, I'm definitely on yeah. board with that. <laughs> and would you sort of, does that mean you double pudding it and you'd have a pudding to finish? Or? Probably not. I mean, you could. You could. If you're ambitious, yeah. I think you could. <laughs> um, amazing. Well, that sounds delicious. Thank you so much for letting us hear your Desert Island dishes. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I mean, he wasn't going to be drawn on the best dish. And I can understand. I'm in the wonderful position of asking these questions, but I still don't know what some of my answers would be. So I'm really nearly there with the new website. I know you're all on the edge of your seats, but honestly, I'm really excited about it. So head to desertislanddishes.co, sign up. Why not live a little? Thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to tell all your friends, the more the merrier. And I will see you next week for more Desert Island Dishes. Bye. Bye.